What a song and what an introduction to tonight's message. It's actually kind of pretty much all in that song. So it's great. And let me just return to you then to Ephesians. It's up there on the screen. Ephesians chapter 6. For some reason, I've got to see Ephesians chapter 1 on my sheet. I don't know why. Uh, verse 18. Yeah, it's uh, verse uh, 10 through 18. Yeah. So Ephesians 6, 10 through 18 says this. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. So we've seen so far in this amazing piece of scripture that Paul exhorts his readers to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Before he says anything else in this last thing that he addresses, this church too. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. When it comes to confidence and courage in the face of a powerful and overwhelming enemy such as the devil and of course his fallen angelic followers, our source is the Lord himself. We put no confidence in the flesh. That's exactly what we've just sung, isn't it? We put no confidence in our flesh because it's fallen. It's weak. It's untrustworthy. The Bible says that our hearts are deceitfully wicked. That means, friends, that our hearts, as good as we may think they are, actually deceive us. So they're deceitfully wicked and we're easily led astray. One thing that really grieves me about popular streams of Christianity is that it's become extremely man-centered. Extremely man-centered, whilst under the pretense of being Christ-centered. This is so in a number of ways, but today I'm just going to focus on this issue of power and authority. There is a belief that runs through certain streams of Christianity, so-called, that when Jesus died on the cross, defeated the enemy and his plans, when he conquered death and wrought salvation for many, that contained in this salvation is power and authority for the believer. Because Jesus has power and authority, 
over the devil. And due to us being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, according to this theory, we too, as his disciples, have that same authority, the same authority that Jesus has. But Jesus, as we see, we saw this kind of this morning, didn't we, in a sense, that he did give authority to his apostles to perform miraculous feats. And as they preached the gospel, gospels, such signs followed them. This included the casting out of evil spirits from those who were possessed at the time. And these were, were powerful signs. But I think that there's a clue in that. Signs. Signs is what they were. Signs. I believe when you look into the scriptures that you will find three or four particular times in history, depending on whether we separate the ministries of Jesus and those of his chosen apostles or, or whether we keep them as separate. Some gather them together as one whole period of time, others separate them. So this is the times that we look at where God particularly confirmed his message with signs, wonders and miracles. The gathering together of God's chosen nation and the writing of the law through Moses and then Joshua as he led them into their inheritance. That's the first time that you really see these kind of amazing, miraculous signs and wonders following a man who God has sent. Of course, he went to deliver that message to, uh, to Pharaoh and all these great plagues were sent at his word and they continued throughout his ministry. Then there's the message and the call of Israel to come back to the Lord through the prophets, particularly through Elijah and Elisha. There were signs there. And then, of course, we have those attesting signs and wonders of this long-awaited Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the birth and the foundation laying of the early church through the apostles. That's why I kind of group them as four rather than three. And these signs and wonders were given from God. They were attesting signs of God, not only of God, but also of the men sent to proclaim the message. You can look in every instance, Moses, what did he say? He said, Lord, how, how will these men who you've sent me to, how will they know that I come from you? How will they know that, that their God, the God of the elders of Israel, has sent me? How will they know? I, anybody could say that. When he said, cast your stick to the floor, and it became a serpent, and then he said, pick it up, and it became a staff in his hand again. And if they don't like that one, if they don't, Take that one, do this one, put your hand in your bosom and pull it out and it will be leprous and put it back in again. And then it was healed. And so they will believe that the God, or I am, has sent you. That was the reason that they were attested by God, because they simply wouldn't at that time just take his word for it. But we can see largely through Paul's epistles particularly that as the inspired authoritative scriptures were written and godly instruction began to be collected and sent around to the churches to all believers that the church became more and more established over the known world which meant that these attesting signs and wonders were no longer needed and so they began to decrease 
and eventually cease when all Christ's apostles had gone to glory. You see that through his letters. But I want to make sure that we understand this, that this does not by any means suggest that God no longer performs miracles. He does. Mighty ones. Ones that are outside of the remit of man and his creation. He can't do it. But it's just that these apostolic sign gifts are no longer given to men. So going back to what I was speaking of, that our, we may call them continuationist brethren, if you like. They believe that because Jesus gave this power to his apostles, that it means that we as believers today have this same power and authority. And due to this belief, at least in my experience, and I have quite a lot of experience in this, that men are raised on pedestals, they're lifted up, and some even raise themselves. And, and what I see is this, that they, they treat the devil. This may sound odd to you, but they treat the devil with very little respect. Respecting the devil doesn't mean we need to like him. It means we respect our foe. You go into to any of the history of war, we should never underestimate the enemy. We should always hold them in some form of respect so that we don't be found to be wanting when we come to fight them. But some of these people, they, 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 they treat him as if he were some little child playing with a wooden sword. They think that by, by shouting boldly or, or declaring authoritatively at him, or even using the name of Jesus Christ as some kind of power word, that they can bind the devil and tell him what to do. I've seen it in the flesh. And they believe that they can put paid to his escapades and, and drive him out of, of any and every, what I would term, normal life circumstance. People blame the devil for any number of things that is just, just life. Interestingly, this little, weak, old devil seems strong enough to keep breaking the binds that he is bound with by these people. I bind you. Satan, I bind you, they say. Well, why? Who keeps letting him out? Because the world is still, still wicked. He still wreaks havoc across this globe, doesn't he? Take a minute to think. Remember what happened to the seven sons of Sceva? They presumed to use the name of Christ in exercising evil spirits. In Acts chapter 19, 11 through 17, this is what we read. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick. Many people emulate that today as well. And it says the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, and listen to what it says, took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. They took it upon themselves to copy, saying, we exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish uh, chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on them, overpowered them, 
and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house, naked and wounded. We do not want to underestimate the power of the enemy. And we do not want to be a people who just take this name of Christ willy-nilly and just go and start thinking that we can speak to these demons and cast them out. We have, friends, no power or authority over the devil in and of ourselves. We don't have any power. This is the point that I'm making from the start of this. All power and authority has been given to who? Christ. That's what we read this morning in Matthew 28. All power and authority have been given to me. He has the power. He has the authority. So how are we then, if we're going back to what we began to speak on in these verses in Ephesians, how are we to walk in confidence? How are we to walk in this boldness, this lion-hearted courage that a blood-bought believer should? What, what are our sources? Because it's not us. The devil will overpower us in and of ourselves. Firstly, we need to put our trust in the commander of the army of heaven. John 10, 1-5 says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him. For they know his voice, yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. He calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. What does a commander do? He leads them. He says he goes before them. Christ is always before us. He's not waiting behind. He's not pushing us on forward and hiding away. He goes before us. In the military forces of perhaps every nation. In fact, there are, there, there are ranks, aren't there? Different ranks, different positions. Men who have fought well and have earned their rank. These men are trusted by those he leads. He can be counted on to do his job. His men love him and follow close behind him. He knows his plan and he carries out the strategy in the best of his ability. He goes first. And he will do his utmost to keep his men safe and bring them home from the mission field. That's what a captain does. That's what the leader of a certain battalion will do. He will put himself out there first and men will follow. But you see, our Lord, our Lord is the commander of the armies of heaven. He is God the Son. He is far above being just a mere man, even a decorated soldier of earthly battles. He goes before his people. We've just read it. He leads them out and he goes before them and he leads them valiantly. 
He is immortal. He is invincible. And he cannot be moved. He doesn't make any mistakes. And his plans and his strategies are worked out with the utmost precision, absolute accuracy, and with all victory. He cannot be beaten. This commander, this captain cannot be captured. He will always be out in front with his beloved saints behind him. He is the mightiest of all. No weapon formed against him will prosper. And he is our refuge. He is our fortress, our high tower, our shield and our buckler. We are under the wing of his protection. His promise is that he will never leave us nor forsake us. He will not leave us as orphans. He will fight for us and he will fight with us. And unlike those captains that we've just spoke of amongst earthly men who inevitably lose men on the field, who return home mourning lost brothers in arms, Christ, our warrior king, will not lose any of his. <coughs> he will bring every soldier saint home to his eternal kingdom in everlasting peace. No failure, absolute victory. And as men love their earthly captains and follow them out into the open battlefield, we too, in such a greater measure, love and trust our majestic commander implicitly, and we follow him into the battle. Men march into war with no assurance that they will ever see home again. We march together following Christ into a lifelong battle that we know with absolute assurance that he marches us to certain victory. We cannot lose. And we will, on that last day, enter the shores of the celestial city, God's city, our eternal home. So that's the first thing we need to do. He is our source. We need to put our trust in our commander, who is the commander and the captain of the armies of heaven. Secondly, we need to have an established knowledge of the truth when it comes to courage, when it comes to boldness, when it comes to being lion-hearted, as we spoke about this morning, about going, therefore go. We need courage and boldness to go. Where do we find it? In him we find it. But we must also have an established knowledge of the truth. No matter the rank or position that one has in the army, a soldier's knowledge is absolutely paramount. Even an army chef, someone who cooks for the rest of the soldiers, even he must learn how to be a military soldier. He must have basic survival skills. He must know how to defend himself and he has to be trained in how to use the issued weapons. An enemy raid is no respecter of persons and comes at the most unexpected of times. All personnel must be ready and well trained 
for every eventuality and every possibility. When the Lord Jesus Christ was led out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by the devil, he did not go unprepared. He had no sword. He had no spear. They are useless against a spiritual foe. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.4. See, the devil was not defeated at this time by man's weaponry, but by God's word. How many times did he tempt Jesus? Three times. And three times Jesus replied, it is written. He didn't come at him with, I rebuke you or get out. I mean, he, he can do that. I mean, he did it with Peter, get behind me, Satan. He is the son of God. He has the power to do it. But the point is, he laid down the foundation, not only for his time there, but for us, or for all time after. It is written. It is written. The devil then left him, and it says, for a more opportune time. He came again. Every soldier is supplied with the necessary equipment. But he must be thoroughly acquainted with it. What use is having everything you need for battle within your grasp without knowing every inch of it? Again, it's a bit like having Saul's armour. David, it's useless, too big. See, a soldier, he will train with the issued equipment. He'll have it with him, whether he needs it at that time or not. He will have his equipment with him. He, he runs in it. He sleeps with it. He eats with it and relies on it in the trenches. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, you all know, no doubt. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine or teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I think that's an amazing scripture. We need, of course, the Holy Spirit within us, working in us, working through us with the word of God. We get to that at the end of this context, the sword of the spirit which is the word of God, which the Holy Spirit wields. They go together. They're never separate. But it's the word of God. He says it will make you complete. It will thoroughly equip you for every good work. Remember what we said this morning about those works that he has prepared beforehand for you to do. The word of God thoroughly equips you for such work. Let me just read to you a quote from William Gurnall. He who has only a nodding acquaintance with the king may easily be persuaded to change his allegiance or will at least try to remain neutral in the face of treason. Some professing Christians have only a passing acquaintance with the gospel. They can hardly give an account of what they hope for or 
whom they hope in. And if they have some principles they take kindly to, they are so unsettled that every wind blows them away like loose tiles from a housetop. When Satan buffets and temptation washes over you like a tidal wave, you must cling to God's truths. They are your shelter in every raging storm. But you must have them on hand, ready to use. Do not wait until it is sinking to patch the boat. A feeble commitment has little hope of safety when caught in a tempest. While that flounders and drowns, holy determination, grounded in the word, will lift up its head like a rock in the midst of the highest waves. What an encouragement. What a challenge to us this evening. He goes on to, to speak of that memorable scripture in Daniel 11, verse 32, which says, The people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. Not those who flitter around, not those who just identify themselves as a Christian. That's a, an interesting word these days, isn't it? But those who know their God shall do exploits, great exploits, and they shall be strong. So there we have two things by which we have as our source for our boldness and courage. The third and final one, for now at least, that it's not only in our heads, but that we have engaged hearts. Scripture greatly encourages us to allow or to let the word of God dwell in us richly. Psalm 119. Has anybody read Psalm 119? The longest psalm, about 179 or so verses. Fantastic psalm. It's full of the cries of one who longs after God's word and to be taught in his ways. The writer says in verses 10 and 11, With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word have I hidden, where? In my heart, that I might not sin against you. Deuteronomy 11, verse 18 says, therefore, you shall lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul and bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And the Jewish Orthodox Jews used to have what they, well, they still do, I think, have what they call phylacteries, little boxes that they literally strap to their foreheads that contain the word of God, at least little scriptures and parts of it. They took it from this, that that's what they were to do, literally. But you see what these scriptures say. In my heart, with my whole heart, your commandments, I long for them. I want them hidden in my heart and in my soul. Not just in my ears. This is, this is not just about having a head knowledge. Having a head knowledge of the things of Christ isn't enough. Andrew Davis says this. We must keep growing in knowledge. Or we will cease making progress in the Christian life. All of that knowledge begins as head knowledge. Concepts understood by the mind 
before anything else can occur. And we must have as much of that head knowledge as possible. But woe to us if through unbelief we do not allow that knowledge to transform us into the image of Christ and change the way we live our lives. Again, he's, he's being an advocate. We must read the Bible. We must get it in our heads. We must know it. We must know where the books are. We must know the context of it. We must know the scriptures. As I've just read, these scriptures are there for our reproof, for correction, for teaching, for, to complete us, to make us complete for every good work. Without them, what are we, we going to use? What are our weapons against the enemy? How are we to have courage without the word of God? That Christ said it is written. But he says also, he can't just stay here. It's got to be right in the center, on the throne of who you are. We as Christ's disciples have been exhorted not to try, but to be strong in the Lord. You can be strong in him. Because he is the source of all your strength. You're not relying upon yourself. His is the power that drives us on. His is the power for which the zeal we have flows through our veins and energizes us to face any and every obstacle, trial, temptation, and persecution. It's all from the Lord, and it is the power of his might. What did Paul say? To do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That I would, I'd rather, I want to, I relish, I revel in my weakness. I always think about Gideon when I, when I speak about this kind of thing, who had a great army. And the Lord God got them to drink out of the the lake or something like that. And he said, if they drink this way, they can go home. If they drink in that way, they stay with you. The majority of them, the vast majority of the 30,000, whatever it was, army, they drank in that way and they were sent home. 300 people were left out of that many people. And they still went on to defeat the enemy because God was their strength. And God did that because he wanted all to know that they did it in his power and not their own. It's the same with us. Our weakness, let's revel in it. I can't do this. You can't do whatever God has given you to do, but you can do all things when it comes to Christ who gives you strength to do it. He is faithful and he is trustworthy. He goes before us and he will not leave us. Now an army captain, he relies on the strength of his comrades. It's a team effort. But we rely wholly on our commander for absolutely everything. See, he is our supply, isn't he? Christ is our supply. And he gives us everything that we need. Everything. He will supply your needs, Paul said, didn't he? My God will supply your needs. That's not just about having coin in your pocket. That's not, not about having enough to put fuel in your car and shopping. It includes all that. But he will supply every need that you need in order to do the Great Commission that we spoke about this morning. 
Peter said in one of his letters, his second letter, that Jesus has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And he says this, through the knowledge of him. Without knowledge of him, we can claim all that we like. We can claim to have power over the devil. We can claim to move in signs and wonders. We can claim uh, all sorts of things. But if we don't know him, we have nothing. And our claims are meaningless. We have the weapons of our warfare. But what use is the sword of God's word if it remains in its sheath? Sharp, but unused. Able to slay the enemy, but it lies dormant, an ornament of power. And this sword of the word must have pierced our own hearts through first. <coughs> must have been driven hard to break the callous of sin. To deal with our hypocrisy and indifference within our own bosom. We know, or we must know, not only about God, but we must actually know him for ourselves. Those who know their God will be courageous and they will do exploits. And the question for all of us tonight, this morning, the Great Commission, tonight, courage, boldness, zeal for the Lord. Are you a courageous Christian? Am I a courageous Christian tonight? So remember, in thinking about that question, to him who loved us, we are more than conquerors. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we, we give you praise that you have all authority. The Lord Jesus Christ has authority in heaven and on earth. And he is our great commander. Lord, we are here tonight and we all know our weakness. We all know, Lord Jesus, how to go on in our own strength. But Lord, we, we, we ask you to help us tonight, Lord God, to go on in your strength. For it is your strength in which we can be bold, that we can be confident, that we can have this great courage. Oh, Lord Jesus, we ask that you help us to be bold, that we must be bold in trusting in our commander. We must be bold with having an established knowledge of the truth. And we also must not only have the knowledge in our heads, but our hearts must be engaged. Lord, I pray tonight that if there's anyone amongst us who only has a head knowledge, even if it's myself tonight, Lord God, and I don't know the true living God, would you, by your grace, penetrate us, pierce us through with that sword, oh God, and cause us to be true living believers and help us to go on in boldness and courage to declare the wonderful riches that are in Christ. We ask for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.